This week on Dig Me Out. Not only one of my favorite songs on this record, it might be one of my favorite songs, period. <laughs> you know, I did a top 20 or something or top 30. It, wow. Tim and Jay review the tribute album, Kiss My Ass, Classic Kiss Regrooved. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me, as always, in his demon makeup, Mr. <laughs> Jason Ziak. Jay, I'm dressed uh, in the as the Ankh Warrior. Oh, nice. And I hope I'm not giving it away, but for episode 177, uh, Jay, you wanted the best, you got the best, we're going to do some kiss. But not a Kiss album. We're actually going to be doing a Kiss tribute album that you suggested. It's called Kiss My Ass, Classic Kiss Regrooved. This was your pick. So, Jay, other than the obvious that you are a huge Toad the Wet Sprocket fan, why did you pick this album (laughs) for us uh, to do? I, I admit it. I'm a huge Kiss nerd. I probably listen to, I think I'm up to four different Kiss podcasts now. <laughs> it's there like, are, wait, there are four different Kiss podcasts. Dude, there's like probably 20 or more. There, there's a ton. It's like, it might be one of the biggest like subgenres, sub subgenres of podcasts that there is. How is that um, even possible? How, how are they, how is there information and content that's able to be you got a 40 year old band that's got all kinds of minutiae and drama and members and (sighs) and it's spawn you know it it it, the family tree grows you know so it's you've got all the people that have been in the band you've got tons of they have tons of ghost musicians who have played on the records then those all spawn out to all of the projects all those people have worked on and then wow you got the roadies. You've got Billa Coin, who was their manager, and um, Casablanca Records, and all of those people. It, uh, it's a spider web. Wow. There's, there's no uh, shortage of content on these podcasts. It's pretty amazing. So it's safe to say that when this album came out back in, uh, what year was it? 1994, <laughs> you pretty much were on it. Right away. This wasn't something that you just randomly discovered in a used CD bin. Yeah, but it was a weird time for Kiss. And it was a weird time for my appreciation of the band. Because it was after... So they... Well, I'm not going to give the whole history here. But obviously in the 80s, Kiss became a different band. Then in 1992 or 91 or somewhere around there, they released an album called Revenge, which was supposed supposed to be their, you know, back to hard rock, you know, heavy rock you know, dark, raw, and it kind of was. Does that have Unholy on it? Yeah. I like that song. And it kind of was, and it kind of wasn't. And after that, I think they were a little lost in, like, what to do, because I think they really expected that that record would put them back on the map, put them back where they felt they should be. Um, didn't didn't necessarily happen. It, it wasn't a it was, you know, it sold pretty well, I think. And they had a couple songs that, you know, made MTV and the radio and stuff. But it wasn't as huge as maybe as they thought it was going to be. And for the amount of work I think they put into it, 
they were probably disappointed. So I think they were a little lost at the time. And my theory is that this is this record is one of a couple different things that they did in the interim to start to feel out the idea of doing a, um, a reunion of sorts and to try to gauge how much interest there might be in you know, the original band doing something in makeup. So this is, um, I think, conceptually focused on the, you know, the first version of the band. So up through about probably 1980, mm-hmm. 74 to 80. Um, it features the makeup on the cover. And if, I don't know if you noticed, but does not feature the Ace Frehley makeup, Ace Frehley makeup because they I didn't did. have the rights. Right. But they did have the rights to the Peter Chris makeup, so you can see that. The makeup the little boy's wearing is actually an alternate character that Paul Stanley had for a while called the Bandit. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, <laughs> this, this, this I'm, I'm giving you a little taste of what's in these podcasts. This, this is the kind of crap that they talk about. I just right. Eat up. But uh, it was an interesting time, and I was sort of um, not quite sure how I felt about the band. I was definitely getting more interested in the earlier stuff at this point than I was you know what the current man was doing so it kind of aligned from that standpoint I was rediscovering um, starting to slowly rediscover some of the the early records that I hadn't listened to in a long time um, since I was a little kid so I definitely got it when it came out and it also it was a affirmation of because of the artists that are on this was an affirmation of you know that Kiss was in, in fact still cool, or at least the the original band was, and that you know some people that I really respected quite a bit were big fans of them as well. And it kind of started, I think, the a lot of musicians acknowledging you know the influence that Kiss had on them. Um, I think this was you know one of the one of the first, or at least for. Um, you know, the 90s sort of music. In the 80s, a lot of bands referenced them quite a bit, but in the 90s, it was kind of not really cool to say you like Kiss until around when this record came out. And then the Detroit Rock City movie happened and the reunion happened and things sort of picked up. And then. And the MTV Unplugged, too. MTV I think. Unplugged, yeah. So. Because that's actually kind of, when I kind of got into them. Because the MTV Unplugged series, like, showed a lot of bands that I wasn't familiar with. Mm hmm. Because I had sort of missed them, and Kiss was one of them. Because I was never into Kiss at all. Hmm. And then I saw, and I, that was the first Kiss album I ever bought was the MTV Unplugged. Wow. Yep. It's crazy. It's crazy because I, I, one of the most vivid memories I have as a child was um, describing to my aunt all the details of the Kiss Alive Two album, <laughs> like opening the album cover up and like explaining her to her who everybody was and so i could not have been more than five probably four or five years old and i remember telling you know go, walking her through what was going on here i'm sure to her it was horrific because you know the inside of that album cover is like them performing with like just a, the whole stage is fire and gene simmons is on the back with uh He's got blood all over his face and he's sweating. And <laughs> I'm sure she was horrified of like what this little five-year-old boy was doing with this this album. But yeah, they've been 
basically I've been aware of them as long as I've been alive. Well, that makes sense. You they were Kiss 19 uh, was the first album was 74 and yep. that was the year of both of our births. So yeah. With with the birth of Kiss came the birth of Jason. <laughs> Pretty much. There's not a, a, a yeah, I mean it's in all memories I have, I not only was aware of the band, but was a fan of the band. So, and so you mentioned about Revenge. That was '92. They wouldn't put out another album, other than. So, so the, explain to me before we get into this. The Carnival of Souls was that an actual album that came out, or was that just like demos for an album that they never released? Yeah, that's what they were doing when this, between you know, um, Unplugged and Revenge, they did this compilation, which. As far as I understand, Kiss was pretty involved with this. At least Gene Simmons was, I think. And they did this album, Carnival Souls, which was basically them trying to be, you know, alt rock. Um, from what I've heard, Gene Simmons was fascinated with Smashing Pumpkins, Billy Corgan, and was hmm. trying to do something like that. Um, so they were like in a studio for a year or something or more working on that record at the mean in the meantime like i said you know they're doing this project and they're starting to think i think their business side of their head mind and i think they had people coming to them with offers and the gear started turning at the same time they're recording this carnival souls record about doing a reunion and they started i think it's when the kiss conventions really took off too so they were doing they started actually doing those, like going to those and playing acoustic. And there was all of this nostalgia that all of a sudden built around, you know, the original lineup. And this album was, this compilation was part of that. And um, so they recorded that Carnival of Souls. And they basically, I think just as they were finishing it, they cut the deal to do the reunion. So what I understand, they basically went out and, they went out and did that, and then behind the scenes, um, the album got finished, and it kind of sat there, and it got leaked. And because it got leaked, the record company freaked out and was basically like, you know, we're losing money on this record. It's sitting here. We could be making money from it, but you know, people are starting to share it. It's getting around. So the only reason that record came out at all, which you can tell from the album cover, it's like, not a whole lot of thought went into how to package no. it up and market it. No. The only reason it came out is because all of the, um, you know, the, the recordings had leaked already and they were, you know, basically looking at not recouping anything from all this money they spent on recording. So I think the record label just made the call to release it and just put it out um, pretty much while the band was in full reunion mode. It basically looks like the band was in the middle of a practice and they walked up with the camera and said, turn to the camera, yeah. click. Okay, thanks, guys. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's the album cover. Exactly. It's also known as the, um, in the fan circles, as the Bruce Kulik solo record. Because at that point in the band, he was really the major creative force. Like the Gene and Paul were checked out and trying to make the reunion happen. And didn't really, like Paul didn't understand how to, I think how to be a rock star in that, that climate either. Um, he he's not a you know he's not an angry guy he's not a angsty guy mm-hmm. so I think it was uncomfortable for him to try to pretend to be Smashing Pumpkins or Nirvana or something 
which makes sense. And I think once they put the makeup back on and took on those personas and get to own their back catalog again and really, you know, that was way more comfortable for him. So, And then they would go into, like like you said, makeup mode with the a year after Carnival of Souls is when Psycho mm-hmm. Circus would come out. And that's like mm-hmm. them going back to, which has one of my favorite Ace Freely songs, Into the Void. That is the only song on that. That song is the only song on the record that the entire band actually played on. There was no other song on, on the uh, Psycho Circus that uh, all four members of the band actually played on. Excellent. So, and this, so there's there's a reason why that's the, everybody's favorite song. Like, you didn't even know that, and you still could tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, overall, it's not a great record, but... No, it's that, not. But, but that's not pretty good. Yeah. I, I Pledge Allegiance to the State of Rock and Roll is, is pretty awesome, just for the title. Yeah. Pairs well with God Gave Rock and Roll to You Part 2. Uh, anyway, so we've gone off on a tangent, much like probably several KISS podcasts do. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the history of this particular album that we're doing, which is Kiss My Ass Classic Kiss Regroove. This was released in June of 1994. Features a variety of artists. Like you said, Jay, um, it was Gene Simmons who was involved quite a bit in the creation of this particular record and i think we're going to go through this song by song and there's some interesting notes uh, about his involvement in these songs um so we'll get to that as we're going through uh it was released on mercury records the german version actually includes a, an additional song you mentioned about most of these songs being from the early years but the german version actually fe- features a cover of unholy by the german band die arts which I have not heard. Yeah, I don't know why they did that. That would be the only song that wasn't from the you know, pre-1980. Very strange. Yeah. Not sure what the reasoning was Obviously, for that, in that, but... you know, that song, they weren't in makeup and it's different. Totally different. So there right were, uh, this, this album made it to number 19 on the Billboard 200 and there were two singles released, Deuce, which made it to number 11 in the mainstream rock tracks and then Hard Luck Woman, uh, charted on adult contemporary hot country singles and top 40 mainstream so there you have it that is the classic kiss regroove we'll get into more on this record as we're going through Um, but i want to get to our facebook feedback because we got quite a bit on this record eric grubbs the only tune i remember is garth brooks very faithful and quite good version of hard luck woman jeffrey dolinger Played Detroit Rock City off this for my son because it was the only version I had on vinyl. Listened to a few more tracks for the first time in 15 years. More grungy than I remember. A little disappointing this far removed from that era. Gavin Reed, uh, with the first of his two comments. An interesting album, guys, although after the initial few, few listens, I've never been back. So I'm glad you brought this up. But it's not the best Kiss Covers album. That honor goes to Hard to Believe. Is that a name of a... Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Is that the and one that has, has Nirvana on yeah, it? Yeah, has Nirvana, and it says it has an, an early Nirvana recording of a Kiss song. Yeah, they do. Uh, um, do you love me? Which is a funny song for them to do, right? But they, but they do it pretty well. Eric J. Peterson says, "I was going to buy this album when it came out, but the Galactic Cowboys cover of I Want You that was recorded for the album wasn't included, so I passed on it. That cover was released on the Galactic Cowboys." 
Feel the Rage EP in 1996, the Galactic Cowboys were a little brother band to King's X with a heavier sound than King's X. Also, I would say the best Kiss cover is the replacements version of Black Diamond. Have you ever heard that, Jay? Uh, I have, yeah. Bring, and I'm I've bring seen, that up later. And I've seen Galactic Cowboys live. Whoa. <laughs> That's a band we might have to review. You might have just blown Eric J. Peterson's mind. I saw them open for Dream Theater on the Images and Awards tour, I believe. Boom. Joe Royland, Thank nice. You. Looking forward to hearing this one. What was really interesting about this album was the list of artists who were supposed to be on it, but didn't end up being on it for one reason or another. Most of them are listed in the album's credits, but I would have to really, but I would have really liked to have heard more of those contributions than what we actually got. I did really dig the Toe the Wet Sprockets kind of campfire arrangement of Rock and Roll All Night. A completely unexpected take that really worked. That one and Dinosaur Jr.'s dead-on version of Going Blind are two of the highlights for me. Colin Martz. The one rumored cover that was that was supposed to be on the album that I always wanted to hear was Love Gun by Nine Inch Nails. That would have been interesting. Uh, and then Gavin Reed with his second comment. Sorry, guys, but my previous comment was purely from memory. I've just listened to this album, and it's terrible. Huh. I take... Only the guitar solo from the Anthrax song. Who said that? Gavin Reed. Hmm. I mean, you have to be a Kiss fan to like the record, too. You know what I mean? So, Well, fundamentally, yes. See, uh, if you don't like Kiss, you're not going to like... <laughs> you get no, you know, no interest in this record. So, Well, those are the comments we got from our Facebook feedback. want to remind everybody, if you want to suggest an album for us to review, visit the request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. But... But there are some, um, like I felt like the Sweet sweet Relief album we reviewed, you, you didn't have to be a fan of Victoria Williams. Victoria Williams to appreciate that. No. Um, there are some that transcend the original artist, you know, but I don't right. think this is one. So let's go track by track through this record, Jay. Let's talk about classic Kiss regrooved. And let's start out with track number one, Deuce, which is... Credited to Lenny Kravitz and Stevie Wonder. Yep. Now, when I first put this on, I thought this actually sounds like where, <laughs> this actually sounds like where Lenny Kravitz got the idea for Mr. Cab Driver, um, in terms of uh, the guitar riff. Maybe not exactly, but I've always felt like Kravitz uh, stole a little bit from some Kiss riffs in uh, it's a number of his songs. Mm. Um, I think that. He actually does a fairly good job. I'm not the biggest Lenny Kravitz fan in the world, um, but I think he does a fairly good job in the groove department. If there's one thing that Kiss was never really great with, um, it was probably, you know, producing that sort of groove. I mean, Peter Chris is a competent drummer, um, but he's a rock drummer, and Lenny Kravitz brings that, like, a little bit of more of a groove element, like I mentioned with Mr. Cab Driver, than mm-hmm. what the original does. Um, I think it's a strong album opener. I think if you are a fan of Levy Kravitz, you're probably going to be like, oh, this is kind of cool. And if you're a fan of Kiss, you're like, well, this is pr- this is a pretty respectable interpretation of that song. Your take on uh, Lenny Kravitz and uh, the Stevie Wonder aspect of it, I don't like, I hear uh, extra instruments going on, but it wasn't as pronounced as I was sort of hoping. Yeah, I like this better now than I did at the time. You're right. I mean, Kiss... It- they the early kiss stuff had from a feel standpoint it either had a straight up rock feel or if it had any kind of 
other take on that. It would be more of a swing feel because mm-hmm. Peter Chris has kind of a jazz background. This takes it into a little bit more of an R&B funk kind of area, which is, you know, when I heard it, when it came out, I was less interested in it. It was okay. But now when I listen to it, I really um, thought it was pretty good. Um, I like what he's doing with the rhythm. I like what he's doing with, he's replacing one of the, he's replacing the second guitar with organ and harmonica both. And I Mm -hmm. believe that's what Stevie Wonder's playing. I think he's playing both those instruments. And the way that those are done, um, I can really appreciate now. Uh, It's really paying attention to how they bring those two in and out and have them, you know, play the part of that second guitar, but in a really uh, different creative way that fits Lenny Kravitz better. You know, the vocal is good. Uh, It's a good, and I think this will be a theme for this whole record in that, you know, you want the artist to take take the song and make it, you know, unique in some way, but you don't want to go so far that you lose the song. You know, you lose the melody, you lose the mm-hmm. hook. Um, I think he's able to do it pretty well. I think he keeps the song, and um, he's it's definitely a Lenny Kravitz tune. The only thing I don't like is I they kind of extend the ending a little bit. Yeah, they run out um, of steam at the end. Yeah, it's, and I know that's probably because they wanted to make the most of having... Stevie Wonder on the track. There's a lot of harmonica stuff and organ stuff at the at the end at the end that they're playing around with. Um, so from that point, I guess it makes sense. But you know, Deuce is it's it's a classic song. It's it's a classic Kiss song. It, it's you know fairly short and concise. You don't need to. It's not one you really need to jam out on. So that's my one complaint on it. Track two is the Garth Brooks track that we referenced in the Facebook feedback. It's his version of. Um, Hard Luck Woman, but the odd part about it is, is that it's actually Kiss backing him up, yeah. which I kind of think is a missed opportunity. I would have liked to have heard him play mm-hmm. with the, the guys that he was, like, you know, Garth Brooks in 1994 was huge. Yeah. You know, he was coming off of some massive singles in the early 90s. He hadn't blown everything up with that stupid Chris Gaines persona <laughs> and album. Oh my God, I and that happened. Yeah, and you know, I would have liked to have heard a sort of a Nashville even if it was Nashville in the early 90s, which was pretty commercial. Would have mm-hmm. liked to have heard a slightly different take um on Hard Luck Woman, which I believe Jay uh and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, is basically Kiss's version of Maggie May. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it's even though it's a a song with them trying to write in the, in the you know Kiss is famous for trying to adapt uh, other sounds and, and styles and turn them into their own for popular music purposes but I think in terms of a Kiss song I think Hard Luck Woman is actually one of my favorite Kiss songs because it's I think lyrically it's a little more advanced than you know <laughs> let's put the X in sex or you know whatever random you know, not there's no innuendo in the in the song whatsoever. Hard Luck Woman has some actual like interesting lyrics mm-hmm. um, to it, but I just wish that you know with Garth Brooks singing with Kiss, it just sounds sort of flat to me. Whereas I think if you had somebody else playing the guitar and maybe a different rhythm section, it just I think it would have been a bit more interesting. I totally agree, and. I had forgotten that it was Kiss playing on the song. My 
impression of it now was like essentially it sounds musically it sounds exactly like the original mm-hmm. um so it makes sense that it's it's the band what it really put the spotlight on for me was garth brooks is a very average singer yeah like, because you know the whole point of this song is this is paul stanley you know uh, the, the original you know vocal was done by peter chris who has a you know, really raspy voice he can do a rod stewart impression uh, so I think Paul Stanley wrote this on purpose for because of that, and because Maggie Mae was a hit, and they were, you know, Rester was getting big, and he, I, I know he said, I think it was in his book, he said he sat down and just tried to write a, you know, Rod Stewart song. So what ends up happening is that yeah, the song is it's a good song lyrically, it's good. I love the chords and stuff. I love the melody. Um, I love the the tempo and the feel of it. Um, like the 12 string with mandolin kind of texture that's going on. But really the big focus of the song is the vocal. Well, without that really kind of raspy, dirty, ragged vocal, you're left with this kind of middle of the road, at least on this performance. I mean, I'm not, I don't know that much about Garth Brooks, but I got to think that he's got to be able to, pull off a better performance than this um it's just very mediocre if never i'd met you i'd never have seen you cry not for the first hello you never have to say goodbye if never i held you my feelings would never show Time I start walking but there's so much that you never know I keep telling you a hard luck woman You ain't a hard luck woman Red, the sailor's only daughter The child of the water Too proud to be Maybe just you know miss the um, the sound of of Peter Chris, and um, even though it's not maybe it doesn't have the range, somebody like Garth Brooks, it's all about that rasp and just just the character you know and the sound and texture and just it brings another level to it. And, and this song without it is just very safe and mm-hmm. not not remarkable in any way. No, it sounds like the guy at your local bar. Like in with the Kiss cover band, like yeah. it's just not. There's no energy to it, and there's no, like, there's no uniqueness. It it just sounds like a any generic Kiss cover being played. Doesn't yep. like if if you're gonna do it, Garth, do it with your own sort of take on it. Yeah, which a lot of these bands, you know, attempt to. And one that does is Anthrax doing a cover of She. Which, you know, they bring it into Anthrax territory. They, the guitars are louder, heavier, um, and that riff really works with their style. And I think that in terms of, 
you know, you, when you're doing the cover, you can take the, we're going to do a note for note, you know, get it, make it sound exactly like the band, or we're going to make it sound like us. And I think they take the right approach, which is we're going to make it sound like us and work within our, you know, comfort zone and, and adapt the sound to what we sound like. And I think they're, this is one of the examples where they make it work um, and not try to like mimic what Kiss was doing. Yeah, I think though that they were so influenced by this era of Kiss, um, the early first two or three records, that you know that that part of Kiss is part of Anthrax. So was, this is a very natural mm-hmm. um, thing for them to step into, and it comes off that way. It sounds completely comfortable. Um, it blurs the lines between you know an Anthrax song and a Kiss song. You know, I, I think you could. If you were unaware of Kiss and you put this on an Anthrax record, I think people would totally buy it as an Anthrax song that they wrote, and you know, and and as we know, it's a, it, it is a Kiss Kiss song, so it works there as well. You just turn on the distortion some and you know, open it up a little bit and make it a little bit more blues oriented. Yeah, I think they do a great job with it, and there's some things about it too that there's little nuances and things that they they do right. So the main vocal, um, John Bush's voice is is a great match. Um, for Gene Simmons song and he's able to do it without sounding like he's doing a Gene Simmons impression mm-hmm. which on some other songs in this record when they do the, you know they do Gene Simmons songs the singers kind of sound a little bit silly <laughs> yeah. they sound like they're pretending to be him and that's not the way to approach his songs um, you need to do it in your own voice and John Bush does it in his own voice but then they also have the harmonies in there which give it that texture and that kind of um a little bit of a 70s vibe you know it's not that's the probably the one thing that's different than what anthrax would do is anthrax would probably not do those harmonies but because kiss had them on on the record and it kind of made the vocal sound they they did them as well um and there's also just some guitar stuff that you know when i love the original and i you know other versions of it they've done live and stuff i've loved but this song really lends itself to a very crunchy you know metal sounding guitar mm-hmm. tone. So there's some of the uh, some of the riffs and just different things that I think are, you know, part of the part of the parts. Uh, I just never never noticed them um the same way because they're just played with a different tone and just a slightly different feel. It really accents um some aspects of the guitar riffs and things that I just had never noticed before. But um overall it's a it's a great fit for them. When they go into the and it also I think this is one of the only songs I'm trying to look here really quick. <sighs> Maybe Deuce. This is one of the only songs off of um, the first record, I believe, and that represents the authentic band part of Kiss, like when they used to write songs in a practice room together and weren't always trying to write big singles. They were just operating as a band. So it has like this second you know part that's a different riff and they you know it's got changes it almost gets like proggy in some Mm -hmm. respects towards the end of the song those are things that kiss has never done again you know really maybe on revenge they tried to do it a little bit but it's not the same um even a song like deuce which is also on the first records is pretty concise you know they i think saw it as more of a just simple rock song and kept it short um, and everything else after that, and basically the rest of this compilation, are songs that 
were probably written in the studio or at least re- very refined in the studio. And they just don't have these passages of just, you know, playing riffs and long solos. And um, I'm really glad Anthrax picked the songs that allowed them to uh, highlight that that part of Kiss in the best possible way. I'd like to hear a tribute to this tribute album. I'd like to hear Baroness's take on <laughs> Anthrax's take of She. Yeah, they would do a good job with it. Yes. Uh, track four is Christine 16, and it's done by the Gin Blossoms. And I, if you had played this song for me ten times in a row, I would never have guessed that it was the Gin Blossoms yeah. that, were, that were doing this version. Because um, they actually do a good job of putting a you know an updated spin on the song but not really making it i don't know if it's a good job because i don't i couldn't figure out that it was them but not making it like gin blossom song they didn't take christine 16 and turn it into until i fall away or um you know you know what i mean like it's not a jangly pop version they actually make make it a rock song but that said and i don't know if this sort of taints my view Christine 16 is not one of my favorite Kiss songs, so it doesn't make me necessarily want to go back and listen to this particular version either, because it's just, I just, it's not a song that I find interesting. Yeah. Um, with it, whereas you know, with some of these other songs, I already like that original version. So to hear the updated version, whether it's successful or not, makes me want to listen to it. Whereas this one, it's like, meh, I don't really care because I didn't really like the, the the original one anyways. Yeah, this is a big missed opportunity, I think. They basically did an impression of Kiss, which, uh, you know, on technical merit, they get it. They get it sounding pretty close to what the original sounded like. This has got a little bit more of a heavier guitar tone in the in the verse, and um, the Kiss version's a little bit cleaner and more mm-hmm. pop oriented. But it's pretty damn close. And, and the, the biggest mistake I think they make there is it's just not them. You know, they they don't. You know, one I know the Jim Blossoms, they don't would never sound like this. So, this is also a case of where the vocalist is doing what I think is an impression of Gene Simmons. He's not really singing in his own voice; he's singing in, you know, a fake Jim's Gene Simmons voice, which sounds just kind of silly. Right. Um, they put in all of the Christine Sixteen has a, some spoken stuff like behind it. I think when you consider the subject matter of the songs, this is a song that Kiss doesn't even play anymore because it's kind of awkward. I mean, this is a song about, you know, a guy leering and lusting after a 16-year-old girl. Right. <laughs> um, so even Kiss won't play, the, from what I know, of, they won't even, they don't touch the song anymore. It's just, this was something in the 70s. It was cool to say, but obviously now is is kind of weird. So... They, the the spoken vocal thing in the original, it's almost kind of creepy in a, it kind of works when you listen to the original, you know what I mean? Like it's naive at the time, you know, for the time. And there's this, um, I don't know, like almost like a horror movie kind of <laughs> take on it where it's like, it's very innocent sounding, but then there's like this deep spoken voice underneath it. And it's just this weird kind of moment in time of the seventies that you can kind of appreciate it for them covering it and not changing any of that is very, a very strange decision for me. Yeah. Uh, I think it just comes down to, it was just a bad choice. I I think somebody like nine inch nails 
could have taken this song and like really explored the space, if you will, and said, okay, what is this song about? And like, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty like gross. Let's, let's mess around with this and see like, where else could we take this? And what well, can we put a dark angle to it? And you know what I mean? Really like didn't done something twisted and it kind of almost could have made sense out of it. But Jim Blossom's just trying to do an, a straight up version of it. it just makes no sense to me. I think there's a billion other songs that they could have chosen and done closer to their style and would have worked a lot better. Yeah. Now, with track five, we get to the aforementioned Toe the Wet Sprocket campfire version of Rock and Roll All Night. And I have to preface this. We were in the, I was in the car with my wife and I put this on knowing that she knew some Kiss songs and knowing that she was familiar with bands like Toad the Wet Sprocket and Gin Blossoms and Dinosaur Jr. And I wanted to see if she could pick out like, hey, who's this band covering Kiss? So I started with the Toad the Wet Sprocket song and like five seconds in, she was like, oh, is this Toad the, the Wet Sprocket? And I was like, how did you, how did you know that? And she said that it's like, well, back in the day, apparently she was a huge Toad the Wet Sprocket fan. She downloaded a concert from like LimeWire or Napster where they played like live at KEXP and did like you know a live set and they played this version of rock and roll all night as a part of their hmm. live radio performance so she had heard it before oh okay um that said i actually really like this version of rock and roll all night and i i didn't think that i would Because it's Toad the Red Sprocket saying, "Look, we're Toad the Red Sprocket. We're not going to sound like Kiss. Right, so we're gonna right. we're gonna completely change the arrangement of this song. We're gonna change the cadence of the vocal. We're gonna make it work for us, and we're gonna take something that's kind of silly and actually make it kind of melancholy. And it kind of spoke to me on this sort of like weird level of it's almost sad." Uh, in a in a way mm. um, that I wasn't really expecting, but I really appreciate the fact that they, you know, went for it in this direction, and I could understand how a lot of people who like Kiss probably heard this one like, "What the hell? Mm. You know, how could you do this to our song?" But I think that they they pull it off, and I think they they do it, you know, their way and stick to their guns, and it works for them. I agree for a lot of the reasons you said. They make it their own, which, it, you know, you just end up respecting and it makes sense and it sounds genuine. Even though it's dramatically different than the original, 
that's okay. We've heard the original. I mean, Kiss has put that song on. I mean, literally, it's probably been on 20 different records at this point. Mm-hmm. We, we don't need a, and there's, you know, Poison's covered it. And, you know, there's been countless people that have covered it pretty much the same way that Kiss does it. We don't, we don't need another version of the song like that. So uh, I'm totally fine with, and, and plus it's a, it's a really simple song. So it allows itself to be interpreted in ways that um, keep you know, most of the integrity of it and still make it recognizable, but allow different artists to own it. The only gripe I have with it, or it's not really a gripe, but one thing I wish they would have done a little bit better is that I think the chorus could, there's just some ways that they changed that, that melody in the chorus that there's a couple notes in there that maybe I would have done a little different to try to just hit on the original melody a little closer and mostly just to get, I love how the verses are so melancholy and take on this whole other point of view almost. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it would be cool if the choruses pick up and they become brighter. I just wish they were a little bit more bright. But overall, I think it's a really creative take on this song that we've heard a billion times. So track six is also a take, you could say, on a on a song that we probably know, which is Calling Dr. Love, which I think is probably one of the better known Kiss songs. I don't know if it's up there with Detroit Rock City and Rock and Roll All Night, but I think it's pretty high up there. It's done by, uh, it's performed by Shandy's Addiction, which is actually a super group of sorts featuring Maynard James Keenan from Tool, uh, Tom Morello and Brad Wilk of Rage Against the Machine, and then bassist Billy Gould of Faith No More. That is, it was a you know one-off band for this particular performance. Apparently the guys from Zach De La Rocha didn't want to perform, and none of the guys in Tool besides Maynard were into it. So you get this super group, and they do sort of an, I don't know, a hard alternative rock version of Calling Dr. Love that it works in parts, but in other parts I think that it so veers off course that it, it doesn't, it's so off the original and so... I don't know, not musically interesting enough that it doesn't yeah. keep my interest. I also don't think that he veers between making the, uh, I'm speaking of Maynard, he veers between sticking to sort of the original vocal melody and then not singing the vocal melody that it becomes sort of, I don't know, distracting. They're yeah. trying to figure out what is he doing? Is he is he going to do something sort of original with this? And no, he's not. He's going back to the original part. And then kind of about any it just feel like it works in parts and works in dozen it does kind of ends up just being sort of a little bit of a mess when it's all said and done yeah i agree it's you can tell it's by a you know not a real band because there's no clear vision of what the hell they're trying to do with it um there's no cohesiveness to it the verses remove it's not a tremendously melodic song to begin with and whatever you know, sense of melody that existed in the original verses is gone with the way that they do it. Um, it just becomes, I think you said musically, not that interesting. I, I would say that and almost atonal. <laughs> Cause I think they play like one note or something. Mm-hmm. It becomes more about the rhythm. Yeah, yet the vocal is like you said, going back and forth between the original song and some other take on it. 
it jams out at the end. It, it's just, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think if Tool had done this, they probably wouldn't have though, because I don't think like you know the bass player and the guitar player would have ever done it. Like Maynard's obviously proven since since then that he's a little bit more interested in commercial success than the rest of the guys in the band are. <laughs> Um, but I think if the, you know, tool would have done it, they definitely would have brought a point of view to it and completely and totally committed to interpreting it in some way. Um, that, that was cohesive and made sense. I just, with this, I don't think they know where to go with it. And I think what's most disappointing is that Tom Morello is on the song and just brings nothing to it whatsoever. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's not like a, 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 a really strong Tom Morello guitar solo. He doesn't do anything cool with the riff. I don't know. I just think of him being way more talented and capable than what he brings to the song. And it's actually even more disappointing in that he's the guy that inducted Kiss into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So it would have been kind of nice if, you know, going back to this record now, if you could listen to this song and see him really pay tribute to the band in a way that you could see perhaps their influence on him or, um, his at least performance you could kind of read into that he really appreciated them in some way and there's just none of that that here i think this is a it's a miss on the record yeah now one that is not a miss for me and is actually probably the the perfect combination of song and artist is going blind by dinosaur Mm -hmm. jr when i went back and listened to the original version after listening to this i was like "I, i i can't even like there, there is no perfect band, no more perfect band, to do that song than Dinosaur Junior. Like, it totally fits Dinosaur Junior. And when I listen to the Dinosaur Junior version, I'm like, this could have been on any of their '90s albums. This could have been this. Even the song, even the song title "Going Blind" sounds like a Dinosaur Junior, album, mm-hmm. you know, song title. And it could mm-hmm. have fit perfectly on, you know, "Where You Been" or "Without a Sound" or, you know, any of those records. And if you had just put it on there and, and not made a big deal of it being a Kiss cover, I probably would have thought it was just a, another Dinosaur Jr. song. perfect pairing of artist and song yeah and you know his guitar playing works so well because that song has a lot of little guitar riffs in it which is what jay massis does so well um it's at the right tempo for him the vocal works i mean it's just like it's an absolute home run in terms of finding the right artist to, to play the right song in in this context totally agree i love this song and i you know, I was a, obviously aware of the original, but the original was never a, you know, a favorite of mine in terms of Kiss. It's not a song that popped in my head when I thought of the band. 
when I heard this version, it just made it just clicked, and the original certain all of a sudden took on more meaning for me, and I appreciated it in a way that I just had never appreciated before. Like you said, for all the reasons you mentioned musically, it's a fantastic fit for Jay Massis, and even lyrically, like you know, the lyric of this has always been. It's pretty much like Christine 16. I mean, but the thing that makes it different is that this is told in the point of view of a character. Whereas Christine 16, it's a little bit that you can't really say that. It really sounds like it's coming from Gene Simmons. Right. Whereas this sounds like, you know, he references the guy's age. He's 92. And it's, you know, it's more of like an aqua long kind of thing where you're, you know, telling a story about somebody else. So you can get away with them being creepier and doing strange things. And you can go further with that. And I think that works for. Desert Jr. because vocally, um, not only is it like in his range, but just the, the way he sings and stuff, it just really adds to that. He almost sounds, you know, his voice is a little croaky. He almost sounds like older at times. Um, it's got the falsetto, you know, in the chorus that works, but he can also sing in, in the lower register. They bring some strings in that yeah. really are done in the right way like they add that extra you know melody but they don't all of a sudden take the song over you know what i mean they come in they play their role and then they go away it's it's a brilliant cover i mean it just it's one of my favorite it's not only one of my favorite songs on this record it might be one of my favorite songs period <laughs> you know i did a top 20 or something or top 30 it might very well be in there wow well yeah now, one of the songs that I had high hopes for, but I kind of can, I feel like is a letdown, is mm. Extreme's version of Strutter. Not only because I feel like having Extreme on here is sort of odd, because this is supposed to be sort of like eh, more of an alternative, you know, 90s take on Kiss, and Extreme to me does not represent that. Extreme is more than words, and, you know, a, a late 80s hair metal band, even though they were more than that in retrospect, but their sort of funk uh, metal version, funk metal thing that they do with Strutter, combining, uh, also throwing in some references to other songs like God of Thunder and Shout It Out Loud and Love Gun, some other songs um, throughout the song. I just, like, I feel like this is a version of the song that I don't ever want to hear again. Like, I just don't, li- <laughs> I just don't like their take on it. This like, yeah, yeah. Jammy funky version of str- it just, it, it grates on me yeah. in a way that it, I'm sure I'm getting across right now. Yes. It's this band at their worst. And I'm a fan of some of the stuff by this band, particularly the record they put out around this time. Uh, I, I thought was, was really strong. And yeah, they, they take us, a somewhat, I don't know if it's simple, but you know, it's not the most complicated song in the world. You know, and they get, they have a guitar player who's, they're a three piece. They have a guitar player who's, you know, as talented perhaps, or maybe not approaching the talent of an Eddie Van Halen, but they take the song that's already somewhat simple and they simplify it even more. Um, so they strip the riff down to almost nothing. And then whatever's left over spaces left over, they just do like a funky funk kind of like, you know, palm muted stuff. And they simplify the bass down to where there's no, uh, the bass and drums, there's no like momentum. It's just thin sounding, you know, with all mm-hmm. these holes in it. 
And that pretty much leaves all the space for the the vocal. And the vocal performance, performance-wise, is fine. And in fact, it's it's pretty good. Like he does a pretty good interpretation of, you know, Paul Stanley. But well, it's it's the more schooled version of Paul Stanley. Yeah, yeah. But there's just so much empty space in it that it just doesn't. It doesn't do anything, you know. It's just kind of limp and lifeless, and very thin sounding. And uh, then they kind of try to jam it out, and they put all these other songs in there, which I'm not sure why they're doing that. Like, we just want you to do one song well. Don't give me a medley of like eight other songs in a half-ass way. Just pick one and you know commit to it and, and hit it out of the park. And yeah, it's really disappointing. You would think a band like them would be able to really take this song and you know take it to the next level in terms of their musicianship and capabilities like the chorus they they do their harmony thing which is awesome right i mean that's one of the big things of their sound but even there it's like it's not enough to save it you know so yeah i was pretty disappointed um i don't think i cared for it much at the time and i certainly care for it even less now so you mentioned about uh you know people trying to tackle i guess the vocal of Gene Simmons and one is uh, that comes to mind is uh, Evan Dando and the Lemonheads doing Plaster Caster it actually made me realize that it's not so much that I think that Evan Dando is trying to imitate it's that I think I never noticed that he's in the same range as Gene Simmons and his vocal just works uh, as a or it works in a similar space as uh, as Gene Simmons, and I think if if all you know about the Lemonheads is the singles like "Into Your Arms" or "If I Could Talk I'd Tell You," this would be sort of a shocker. But if you had listened to like some of the earlier Lemonhead stuff, you'd know that they were a much louder band, and this makes much more sense um, in that respect. I guess Mrs. Robinson would be another single that, that was a big one, but then again, that was a cover that they did. But uh, I actually like a lot their version of uh, Plaster Caster. I think that they, you know, pay homage without, he's not, I don't think that he's doing a Gene Simmons impersonation. I think that that's just what Evan Dando sounds like. He's got that, he's in that same vocal range as uh, Gene Simmons, but he's actually a little bit better of a singer. So I actually, I like this one a lot. Um, yeah. It, to me, it sounds a heck of a lot like the original. Um in some ways, I appreciate that because they really capture the. You know, I feel like I'm almost listening to it on vinyl. You know, they capture that guitar tone and that reverb sound, and just the oversaturation of the drums. And um, part of me really digs that. I think the only thing that maybe I wish they would have done is just maybe sped it up a little bit and just loosened up just a tad. I'm not super familiar with their uh, their stuff besides their singles, but. I could see like taking more of a replacements kind of approach with this song and just being a little bit more ragged and, and faster with it. Um, and it sounds like they're really focused on trying to pull off the, you know, the same studio tricks as Kiss instead of just approaching it like a band and just, you know, do a little bit of a, a faster band interpretation of the tune. I think it would have worked a little bit better for me. It's not bad, you know. I don't. It's mm-hmm. not like the the shandy. What is it? Shandy's... Shandy's Addiction. 
addiction where I'm going to skip it um, or the or extreme song, which I'm usually going to skip. Um, but I think it could have been a little bit more um, unique, I guess. Yeah. Unique is maybe a word we could use for the Muddy Muddy Boss Tones and their cover of Detroit Rock City. They actually stay pretty, pretty close in the guitar, drum, and bass realm for uh, this song. But and, and Dickie Betts, you know, is Dickie Betts. He doesn't try to do a, a Gene Simmons impersonation necessarily. He just he does his vocal. Uh, but when they bring the horns in, it turns into the Las Vegas version of this song <laughs> for me. And that's where it sort of, like, it doesn't even really bother me in that, like, first chorus. Um, solo. Cause it's, but it's when it gets to the solo. Yeah. And that is such like, a... It's just a letdown. Yeah. The solo part of this song on guitar is so iconic and so, I'd say even unique. Like, because it goes... It's not your typical hard rock solo section where, you, you know, you get this blazing, you know, guitar finger magic thing or, you know, it's it's very melodic. It, it almost, there's the weird thing, it kind of almost it, it reads like what you would do with horns, except that when you do it with horns, it sounds really lame. But when you mm-hmm. do it with electric guitar, it sounds really cool. So I kind of battled on this song a little bit mentally in that. I, when they brought the horns in early, it kind of worked for me because I've always felt like something about the tone of this, the original song, the way it's recorded, it always had like a brassy kind of feel to the guitar tones. Like you can almost sense horns under the guitars or something. I don't think they're there, but there's just a bigness and a fullness and almost like a dark slightly dark tinge to the, the tonal qualities of the original song so that when they right. interpret it and they put horns in those parts it made sense for me i was like oh okay that it's it's working well and i was dreading as we were i was you know the first time listening to this again getting back to that solo part thinking what do they do with the solo here are they really going to do it with horns or am i going to get guitar and then they got into it and i'm like oh boy You get the whole, it's like an oboe or something. I don't know, but it's just like that's where 
you know, it just, like you said, it turns into a lounge song or something. And all of the balls that the song had originally with the vocal and the just the tempo of the song. And uh, it, it all deflates when you get to that, that solo part, which is a significant part of the song. It's not like right. just you play the verse once and somebody solos over it. It's like a different part. And it has a whole different feel. And the, the one thing that I want to bring up that I loved and that I totally forgot was on here was the intro mm-hmm. um, where they replace the original song has a uh, like a radio voiceover of a car accident and whatever. They replace it with a voicemail from Gene Simmons basically saying that they weren't going to be able to do Detroit Rock City on the record because Ugly Kid Joe had already taken it. And then he suggested that they choose any other song. And as he's saying that, you hear the come in. <laughs> it's pretty awesome, yeah. It's hilarious. I was cracking up. You know, I knew it was on there. I just hadn't heard it in you know years, probably ten years that I've listened to this record, and uh, I was laughing. It was so funny, which it made me wonder. Like, I think he mentions he mentions Ugly Kid Joe, and I thought somebody else. Um, it made me w- want to look up what other bands were supposed to be on this record that uh, obviously weren't didn't make the cool cut <laughs> yeah, or, or didn't do a good job with the song. I don't know which way it was knowing Gene Simmons was the wall, but it was probably the cool cut, but um, made me want to look up. Have you, have you found in your research, did you find the other uh, band that were supposed to be involved? Other than the ones that were mentioned in the comments? No, I yeah. did not. There's gotta be so, out there somewhere. Yeah. So the last song on the record for us, not with the because we don't have the German version, is Black Diamond, and it's performed by um, Yoshiki, which well, it's actually performed by the American Symphony Orchestra, but it was Yoshiki Hash, Hayashi of Japan, and it was originally actually requested that by Gene Simmons that he does that uh, he wanted Yoshiki to perform I which is on the Elder album as an orchestral song. But Yoshiki preferred Black Diamond, so that's what we get. It's Black Diamond with piano strings and timpani. It's so out of place on this record. I really feel like the, the replacement version would have fit perfectly on mm-hmm. this record, but it was an older recording. You know, it's from the, the Let It Be album from like 1983, so it didn't make sense, I guess, because it wasn't a, renew, a new recording. But in terms of... You know, just to talk on, about that recording for a moment. When you think about the replacements, you think of them as being a sort of a sloppy but energetic band, and that's essentially what that song is. I mean, there are mistakes. The bass player runs over a, a, a change, and the guitar player flubs a note here and there. But Paul Westerberg's performance is actually really good and, and heartfelt, and the, you can tell that the band actually have like in a you know a real affinity for that song. Um, they just sort of don't have the chops to play it all the way through uh, without making some mistakes here and there. Um, it sounds like it's a one-off. You know, they did it in the studio and recorded it and said that's good enough, which you know their budget at the time probably didn't allow them to make a lot of do a lot of overdubbing and you know a lot of versions of the songs. But it's I think it's you know it's a good version, whereas this is like. It's fine, but it's so wildly different than the rest of the record that I, when I was listening to it, it almost didn't sound like anything was going on. Like it just sounded like there was some notes being played, and it's just weird. 
it's a weird choice to end the record. Yeah. My guess is that it's on here to sell records in Japan. I don't know a ton about the Shoshiki guy, but he was in a band called X Japan or Japan X, and they're like the Beatles. They're like enormous. Like we, you can't even imagine how big this band is in Japan. And um, I don't know what their music sounds like. I just I'm aware of the name of the band and just how huge they are. Mm-hmm. So my guess is that they wanted, you know, to sell record. I don't know how well some of the bands that are on this record are known in Japan. So my thought is, you know, Gene Simmons is trying to trying to move records and everywhere he can, and just let them do whatever it is that he wanted to do to get his name on the record. That said, I think, yeah, it does not fit the record very well. But as a song, I think it's fascinating. The beginning part actually sounds a lot like The Elder, which the song I is from. Uh, it's almost like a little mini tribute, like the first probably 30 to 45 seconds of the song. Um, it almost it, it makes me think that maybe it was done on purpose. It sounds like a little tribute to The Elder. And then... It just reveals a complexity and a sophistication um, to the original song that, I mean, I've always loved this song, but I just had no idea how much and drama and just interest that, you know, that you could turn that song into. Um, it's pretty remarkable. Um, the, the, and the song is known for, you know, the dynamics of this, the quiet intro and the, dramatic pause and then they really kick into the loud part and they interpret all that and with the orchestra and it's done in a really a really interesting way in that it's different but yet it still has a lot of the same effect there's a middle or sort of a middle to end part where he just does some stuff on the piano like i can't even or somebody does that i can't even wrap my head around like just these crazy piano lines and stuff um just maybe appreciate the original song and just how much interesting uh, melodies and counter melodies and just layering um, that exists on the original that they were able to pull out and really take to a whole different place. I think it says something when you can have an orchestra do a rock song and have it sound completely full and lush. You know, they're not scraping to find things for other people in the orchestra to do. Like there's, there's enough there to work with it. It's completely recognizable as the original, but you know, appropriate for, for an orchestra. Um, so I dig it, but um, I can get, I get why it's, it's an odd choice for the record. Yeah. It's, yeah. I agree that the replacements version would have been perfect. <laughs> so it, 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 it would have been better on a, <laughs> he should have done a classical yes, record, which they ended up doing a, a record with an orchestra several, you know, 10 years later or whatever, but. Right. If Isn't I was Kiss Alive Four or something like that. Something, yeah. Well let's get to our we we've spent over an hour on this. So let's As we let's, should. As we should, of course. Uh let's talk about we're, our ratings. We're probably never this. gonna do a kiss record, so this is close Well you never know. Yeah. We might to get to Carnival of Souls. Might have to check that out. It would be fun. There's a lot of references to nineties music on there for sure. So Jay, if you were to rate this on our patent pending scale, were the album better EP decent single, where would you be at? Oh, it's a tough one. Let me count here. I, oh, I, I really only love five songs on here. Uh, I love Deuce. I love She. I love Rock and Roll Night. I love Going Blind. And I love Detroit Rock City. 
I guess Black Diamond, but I almost want that as a single. So I think I'm at an EP. I think half of these interpretations were probably left better left unreleased. I don't think they're bringing a whole lot to the uh, the, the original material. I'm at the, the same five as you, but I would I like the plaster caster, so I would swap that out with the boss tones. Although I might keep the Boston just because of that voicemail message at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, true. That's pretty awesome. But besides that, I'm going to go with five. It's an EP for me. Five really good tracks, a couple of blahs, and a few stinkers. So uh, we finally got around to Kiss, although we did it through the tribute album way. Like I said, maybe in a few years we'll get to Carnival of Souls, but not this year. Not going to happen. Boom. So, uh, yeah, sorry, Jay. I'm sure you can, start. Listen, you can listen to that on one of your other 500 Kiss podcasts that you I recently to. listened to a, a one-hour interview with the producer of that record. Wow. And I'm waiting for another podcast that I, I listened to. They're going to do a roundtable, which probably will consume two episodes, which is probably two hours total conversation just on that record. My God. (laughs) Yeah, I got a problem. It's a kiss universe. We're all just living in it. That's what that's that's about. So um, while Jay heads off to kiss rehabilitation, I'd like to remind everybody that you can head on over to our iTunes page and leave us a positive feedback if you liked this particular episode, especially if you're a fan of kiss. Uh, Also... Feel free to visit digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find out information on upcoming episodes, news, that sort of thing. And also our hey, request you forgot to page. mention something. Yeah, what's that? There was a there was a video, VHS video that came out in correlation with this called Kiss My Ass the Video. There was. Did you come? The thing that's weird about it is that looking at it right now. It's got like kiss stuff on it. So there's like Ace Fraley doing Parasite. Or Kiss doing Parasite, Kiss doing Do You Love Me? But then there's like She performed by Anthrax and Christine Sixteen by the Jim Blossoms. And then there's a a rehearsal, a kiss rehearsal, and like a bunch of random kiss crap thrown on a video with two cover videos. So, I don't know what this hell this was, what the purpose of this was. Which weren't even the singles that were released. Right, right. Came out on Universal. Oh, very strange. Looks like they just hmm. threw a bunch of crap together to try to, like, you know, carry the momentum of the like the marketing that was going on, maybe. I wonder if the videos were, you said it was to the Gin Blossoms and someone else. Anthrax. Anthrax. I wonder if those were Universal bands oh, at the time. Yeah, probably. Just a thought. Labeled Megaforce Island Electro Sanctuary Nuclear Blast. One of those might have been distributed by Universal or, you know, a subsidiary or something like that. Yeah. That's usually what ends up happening because compilations are so weird when you bring in bands from different labels and you have to deal with all that stuff. So, right. There's all that legal mumbo jumbo to deal with. Anthrax was on Island Records at the time, which was part of the Universal Music Group. Yep. There you go. Well, we crack that nut. Thanks, everybody, for listening. 
especially uh, you know folks on uh, Radio IO and Stitcher and iTunes and Podbean, all all of our various outlets. Thank you for listening, and uh, that's it. Back to our listener review or listener suggestions uh, next week. And uh, for Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back uh, seven days from now with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Yeah.